Welcome to the Essay for FAs Retirement Advisor Podcast, a series that addresses issues of importance to financial advisors when dealing with the preeminent issue on their clients' minds, namely their desire for financial independence. I am your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and this morning I am delighted to present to you Paula Hogan of Hogan Financial. Paula is an especially influential advisor. She has developed and presented thoughtful models of financial planning over her long career, and it is no exaggeration to say she is one of the most thoughtful advisors I have ever encountered. I am certain listeners will feel the same way. Hello, Paula. Welcome to our show. Good morning, Gil. How are you? Doing great. So nice to hear from you. Based on past discussions we've had and on the journal papers you've written, which I have read and appreciated over many years, I think it's fair to say that your approach to wealth management is different from that of most advisors. Could you, in a nutshell, describe it for our listeners? Sure. Our industry tends to take its um, uh, way of thinking and habits of practice from the pension world, where there's always new money going into the uh, pension fund and people live on average, and it has a very long, indefinite time frame. But we work for individuals who, at some point, they will stop working, but they don't know when that will be. At some point, they will die. They don't know when that will be. And during their lifetime, uh, they are vulnerable um, to the ups and downs of market volatility and inflation. So our clients come in and say, how do I arrange my finances so that my family and I are safe and secure in, in retirement? And our industry has tended to say, oh, well, we have this portfolio and on average and over the long term, probably you, know, you can do okay. And if you were imagining a conversation between our industry and individual clients, at that point, the individual client should say, wait a minute, I didn't ask, how do I live on average over the long run, probably okay. I said, how can I be safe? How do I, as an individual, not someone who lives on average, not someone who always has new money coming in, how do I arrange financial security in, in retirement? So there's a cascade of practical pol policy implications from that. The fundamental one that we work very hard in our practice is that there is some standard of living in retirement that you don't want to go below. And so we take those core fixed expenses in retirement and we asset liability match them. So the liability is your lifetime spending, which you don't know how long you will need that because none of us knows when we're going to die, and you're subject to inflation. And we match that with a comparable asset. So it has to last for your lifetime. It has to give inflation protection and it, it has to have some guaranteed bottom you, that, that you don't go backward. So unlike many other firms, we spend a lot of time working with clients on their cash flow and basically layering up lifetime income. Most basically will be Social Security, which obviously lasts for your lifetime and is linked to the CPI. Uh, sometimes people have a pension. Some pensions are fixed. Some have some kind of inflation proponent. Some will last for your spouse, depending on how you elect. Some will you know, last for your spouse, but not, not in full. And then to the extent that that lifetime income that's already in place doesn't cover your core fixed expenses in retirement, we like to buy gradually layers of uh, lifetime inflation protected income. And how you buy that and how fast you buy that is something that we tailor quite closely to the clients. Well, this is certainly a different way of looking at things. And I've often heard it said by critics that this is an overly conservative approach. Um, I don't consider myself conservative or, or aggressive in terms of investments. But when we work with clients, we say it's not all about risk tolerance. First, there is risk capacity. 
And then there's risk tolerance. Risk capacity means if something is a need. If something is a need, by definition, you can't come in below. You've got to have the right amount of dollars on a certain day. Once you've fulfilled those needs, which I argue would be asset liability matching, the the standard of living you don't want to go below, then you can talk about risk tolerance. Because once you've asset liability matched that core lifestyle in retirement, If you think about it, the remaining portfolio is for discretionary spending, either during your lifetime or for legacy. And that's when risk tolerance comes in. And it's not my risk tolerance, it's the client's. Some people say, well, now that I know I've got a core standard of living, and by the way, people define that differently, now I really want to go for it with with my portfolio. And for those clients, we have a fairly aggressive portfolio allocation. Other people say, there's a reason I asset liability match. I don't like risk. I don't like volatility. And they might have a conservative portfolio. So I think when you tease apart risk capacity and risk tolerance, and then follow the client's lead for the risk tolerance part, you get to the right answer. And speaking of your clients, how would you describe the demographics of your practice? Our clients tend to be uh, upper net worth, not ultra net worth. Typical portfolio would be from two to eight million, something like that. In our particular client uh, base, we work a lot with physicians, attorneys, other kinds of professionals. We have a little bit of a specialty with dual career couples, um, mainly because I am one and many of the people in my office are. And about 30% of our database are single women. They obviously feel comfortable in my office. So we're people who have enough money so they have planning choices, but they're not super, super wealthy. And by that, I mean the people in the 25 million and up. And the average age? About 62. And then we keep driving that down as our older clients get get older. So one slice of our um, client base, for example, would be uh, physicians right out of residency. Some of them have negative net worth, but they have income and they have a lot of opportunity to lay the right foundation. And then we have people who are in the middle of their career and they're thinking about how do I raise financially literate kids? When do I say, hey, kids, you are financially literate and competent. Go forth. You're now an adult. And we also deal with people who are in the various stages of retirement. Retirement lasts a long time right now, which is why the decumulation stage in financial planning is so rich because there's so many different chapters and, and issues. Paula, could you tell us what issues are emerging as important among your oldest clients? How to stay safe in retirement. Retirement can be the longest third of your life. And we ask a lot of of older people where to live, custodial care. The government thinks older people are going to go online and reshop their supplemental Medicare insurance every year where we find one of the, it's kind of a canary in the mind for us when clients stop working with us by email, then we know, oh, maybe we're getting into a new, a new chapter and they're not they're not as engaged as they as they were with technology and also with managing their finances. So cognitive decline plays out first over finances and money is private. So often the family or those close to you don't even know. But what we're really finding is most of our clients, and I think we're pretty typical, don't have a child who lives nearby, who's able and willing, who's competent in financial matters and financially literate and who understands the fiduciary relationship that when you're helping someone with their money, it's not your money, it's their money. It's not their values, it's it's your values. So business of growing old in the US is getting more and more complicated. And I think it's a society problem. There are a lot of people living alone, alone and there's a lot we're asking of them that they are by definition because they're old, not able to do. Wow. So what is the Hogan financial team doing for these clients? How are you helping them? Presumably, it's not just strictly financial things, but probably also veers into healthcare issues. So let's put together a team. Um, Most people have an an accountant, an attorney, they have us. 
let's not only have those advisors, but let's start melding them into a team so that while you are chairing that advisory team, if, if you will, you develop habits where the members of the team are actually working directly with each other. Um, at some point, we like to introduce a trust officer from an independent trust company who can initially pay bills and then later on, when the client is no longer managing their own affairs, actually performing those functions because no one else at the table can touch the money. Um, but we want the person who's paying the bills and making sure the income is coming in to be part of that group of the financial advisor, the accountant, and the attorney. Later on, at some point, we'll probably bring in a geriatric care manager because we are decent generalists, but we need help in helping a, a client to decide where to live, when to move to retirement community, and what kind of support you might want to hire privately. So we start when people are really early in retirement and saying, okay, you have these people that you, you know, that you love working with. Let's start actually having them function as a team. Let's start meeting once a year and having the team members experience working with each other. As a financial advisor, I know that when you get people from different fields in the same room working on the same problem, you always get a better answer. But what we're picturing is when the client is in old age and not managing their affairs, that's the safety net. Because if one of us goes rogue, if one of us is, isn't giving the same level of service, then you have a team who everything is transparent and the other team members are going to look at each other and say, you know, are you seeing what I'm seeing and, and, and when do we advocate for making a change? The way the children fit into that uh, setup is we have a, a series of meetings where the children are very, very gradually introduced to this process. Sometimes it's everyone's home for the holidays, you know, come and have coffee in our office and just, you know, this is the accountant that you've heard me talk about. Here's the financial advisor. These are the people to call if you, if you have a question. And we don't do anything more than that. Later on, then you might say, here's what happens. Here's how the estate will roll out. Here's you know, just how things will work. And here's your role in that. Sometimes at that meeting, the children will very recently say, well, how much money are we talking about? And uh, I learned from an attorney, one of the best answers to that question is enough to have this meeting, not enough to change your life, period. Because you don't, you want to give Mon uh, information gradually because once you tell someone exactly what your situation is, you know, you, you can't go backwards. So we try to go uh, whatever we think is right and then we go a notch slower because we want to give people time to mature and melt, meld as a group. If you have a child who at some point is going to chair that committee, then there's a lot of coaching. And so that child be, you know, is basically groomed to, to be the, take the chair that you had uh, when, when you were managing that committee. If, and unfortunately, for a distinct slice of the population, the children don't get the fiduciary relationship. Maybe they have their own issues, marital, drug addiction, or if just by your style, you, you don't want your children in that role, or if you don't have any children, then that committee has to be sort of self-regulating. Self Usually one member of the committee will emerge as a quarterback, but mainly what you're looking for are people who don't have an agenda, don't have inventory they need to sell, and who, who believe in this team collaborative process. So that whatever town you live in, that takes some sifting and sorting to find, you know, attorneys who say, wow, hallelujah, that's how I want to help serve my clients. So we're doing a lot of sifting and sorting to help clients form that group and then gradually meld it into a team, gradually introduce children, and then gradually introduce um, uh, other members as appropriate, independent trust officer and the geriatric care manager. What issues are you finding most salient among your younger households today? Um, many of our dual career couples have long commuting times and childcare is at least as expensive as, as college and people are tired. 
So part of our offering for dual career couples is to make things easy, transparent, everything automated, and they know they can just send us something or call us and say, this popped up, here's my annual enrollment, will you figure it out? So an awful lot of what you're doing for a dual career couple is making life easy for them while keeping them uh, on a good path for a financial thriving. One interesting thing that I've been looking at more is in, you know, I have four grown children and in my era, uh, we had maternity leave and it, maternity leave had you really out of the politics of the day-to-day life. In fact, when I called up my employer after my first maternity leave and started talking about when I'm coming back, they actually said, are you really coming back? Oh, well, you know, I guess we can handle that. But now um, you may have noticed instead of having maternity leave, it's called parental leave because there's also paternity leave. And at first I thought, oh, okay, that's, you know, part of the, we're going gender, gender neutral in many areas in, in our uh, society. Maybe that's it. But what I hadn't realized is how that really, two things, helps family life because the young dual career professional couples are really stressed. They need, need to be able to take their foot off the pedal a little bit. But it also has a very interesting impact I'm seeing in the workforce. And that is, or maybe a little story would help with that. I heard about a, a business luncheon where there are a couple of women and a man. And he was about to go out on paternity leave. And he was kind of stressing to his female colleagues and saying, you know, I'm going to miss meetings, going to miss networking. You know, so much happens just, you know, in the hallway and going out for lunch or dinner. And I'm really tense about that because I'm working so hard on my career. And the women looked at him and said, well, now you know how women feel when they go out on maternity leave. So it's a little bit of a change in the workforce, making it more welcoming for women and more supportive of the dual career couples who are really, really, really under a lot of um, strain, which is one reason it's harder for the older people to get help because the, that middle generation are, are busy and stressed. Some of them are still dealing with student debt as well as mortgage debt and, and childcare costs. Your life cycle approach is an appealing alternative to the portfolio paradigm, but let's address the portfolio for a moment in any event. Do you find there's a particular approach that helps clients more successfully reach their goals? With clients, we often make the analogy with weather. I can't control the weather and I don't even know what the weather will be, but we can help you decide where to live and how to dress. And if you live in a very hot climate and don't wear sunscreen, you are going to get sunburned. But we can talk to you about, do you want to live in a hot climate? And by the way, if you're living there, here's some strategies to stay safe. It's the same thing with portfolio management, that we can help you get the portfolio that fits your particular situation and preferences. If you think about that what I control is risk and cost, the way you control cost and risk, for arguably, is um, we use the passive approach in slang. It's index funds. We use asset class funds. Index funds mirror, uh, slavishly mirror a particular index where asset class funds capture the expected risk and return of a, a particular portion of the market. So we use asset class funds, often known as index funds from Vanguard or Dimensional Fund Advisors, as frankly, most RIA firms do. Where we differ is whether you're using mainly passive with some uh, complements to it or, or the reverse. But if you sit down and say, what are you trying to do? And what can you control? It's risk and cost. And risk is in um, how much of the expense and um, is the portfolio concentrated or diversified? How much exposure is there to the stock market? But we think of the portfolio as a tool, just as the way um, we spend as much time on a client's insurance and cash flow planning and estate planning uh, because we're helping the human capital thrive. And the portfolio is a, a way of doing that. Paula, one more question. You clearly have some well-thought-out principles of wealth management, but do you find that the best principles must sometimes yield to the reality that people are people as opposed to calculating robots and you can't therefore expect to optimize results all the time? 
many times we've put in front of a client, here's your choice at this fork in the road. And they pick up what I, I don't think is the right answer. And I don't understand why they do it. But we work for clients and we believe if you are informed, it's your values and what you pick up, even if I don't understand it, that's correct. And multiple times I found, you know, a few beats down the road, I can see, oh, now I now I get it. Either I didn't have all the information or I thought I understood you, but maybe there was an, ele- an element that, that I didn't. So I think it's not our job to tell clients this is the right answer, you need to do it. I think our job is to create an environment where people are informed and they have a safe place to brainstorm and, and kind of figure things out. So I guess it's the difference between we think we work for the clients and we're very informed, very competent, but it's that those value decisions, those belong to the client. How about that? The client is in charge. Paula Hogan, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on wealth management with our listeners. Thank you, Gil. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast useful, consider leaving a review on Apple or Google Podcasts to help others discover this series. Meanwhile, you can contact me at gill at seekingalpha.com if you have feedback or requests, and make sure to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform.